0: If you have a Bible, we're continuing in our series through the book of Exodus. Um, We're in Exodus chapter 34 this morning, and we're just going to be looking at eight verses this morning, and we've been taking larger sections. So um, it's like, why are we slowing down and taking such a a small section this morning? To me, this section, I've called this message God's self-portrait. Because this is the first time in Scripture where God actually describes himself. And so to me, this is something really important for us to grasp. A.W. Tozer has said, the thing that we think about when we think the word God, that is the most important thing in our lives. I did a Google search, what is God like? 1,880,000,000 hits for that question. So obviously, there's a lot of opinions out there about what God is like. And I think all of us carry an internal picture of God. And to me, that is good in some ways, but it may be bad in others, because that picture of God may be the result of a whole lot of baggage that we have brought into our relationship with God we've all probably got mommy and daddy issues and we can go the psychological route there and all that or there's been experiences we've had in life that we bring certain expectations and understandings of God into life and so there's a whole spectrum of views on what God is like kind of from a divine Santa Claus you know boys will be boys girls will be girls it's it's all good just do whatever you want you be you God's totally cool with that to something like Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion. This is what he says of the God that we're going to be talking about this morning. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, of vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomo... megalomo, megalomo the megalomaniac, maniacal. There we go. Sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's Dawkins. You kind of get an idea of where he's coming from, in this spectrum, and and where he's at. But again, to me, where we need to look for the answer of that question is not necessarily in our experience not necessarily even in those that were supposed to reflect God's character to us, but how God actually reveals himself in his word. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. This is an answer to Moses' request that God show him his glory, right? And God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass before you. I'm going to cause my name to be declared in front of you. And we know in Scripture that name is just... More than just, hey, I'm Brett, you know, my mom picked up this name, she was in a beauty parlor and heard it. It's like, oh, that's a good name, we'll we'll go with Brett. You know, there was no deep thinking there. But in Scripture, a name represents the character of that person. So when God says, I'm going to declare my name to you, he's saying, I'm going to declare who I am to you, Moses. And that's where we pick up the story today. And we're right at the end of this miserable failure of the Israelites, right? Basically, they'd entered into the covenant with this God. They've said, whatever you say, God, we're all about, we're going to do that. And then in 40 short days, basically, they're already committing adultery, basically, on their honeymoon. They have rejected God, they have cast a golden calf, and they are worshiping this golden calf. And God basically says, I'm done with these people, and Moses becomes this righteous intercessor. And we saw that last week, interceding for the people. And he says, okay, Moses, because of your righteous intercession, I am not going to destroy this people. I will continue to go with you and with this people as you move towards the promised land. And that's where we pick up the story. So let's read verses 1 through 8 of Exodus 34. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. And as I always say, if you don't own a Bible, there's a little uh, bookshelf in the foyer that has Bibles and other resources. Please, you're a guest, pick up anything that's of interest to you. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. Remember, Moses broke them when he was coming down and saw what the people were doing. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is a reading of God's word. So Moses is called back up the mountain. This is going to be a renewal of the covenant, basically. The people have broken it, basically. And now, so God's, we're going to go back to kind of reinstituting this covenant. We're going to rewrite the terms of the covenant again. And the ceremonial will come later where the people, again, are welcomed back into fellowship with God after breaking that fellowship through their rebellion and sin. And so God calls Moses up the mountain he says cut a couple tablets you got to cut these because you broke the last ones and I think that was a symbolic act saying basically the people have broken it and this covenant is broken right it needs to be reestablished. and Moses has pled for the people and this righteous intercessor has gotten grace from God and God says come up the mountain you go to the top and even when Moses is on the top of the mountain what does it say God has to descend to him So to me, there's a picture of no matter how high we get, no matter how righteous we may be, that God still has to descend and condescend to speak with us. And so there, on the top of the mountain, in the cloud, the Lord presents himself to Moses, fulfilling what he said, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass in front of you. I'm going to declare my name, my character to you. And so that's where I want to focus this morning, mainly on verses 6 through 8. Because to me, this is really, really important. I want to know what God is really like. And I recognize that my picture of God may be very skewed in my mind based on my experiences in life, the interactions I've had with other people, the interactions maybe I've had with other pastors, et cetera, et cetera. I want to know what God is like from his mouth. To me, in the New Testament, the men are and iron men are going through this book, Gentle and Lowly. That's the one time in the New Testament where Jesus reveals his character and he says, this is what I'm like. I'm gentle and humble of heart or lowly of heart. And it's like, this is a strange picture for the God of the universe to come and say, I'm gentle. My strength is under control and I'm humble. I'm approachable. I'm living among you. And I think here is a similar situation where God is saying, this is who I really am am and i want you to know me and so he comes and he passes before moses and he proclaims yahweh yahweh and he starts there i am that i am i am that i am why does he do that i think he starts there because he's declaring to moses in one sense i am beyond your ability to comprehend i am that i am And a finite human being, you're never gonna know me completely. I am beyond your ability to grasp and comprehend all that I, you just, I just am. There's no words that can fully describe who I am, other than I am that I am. And if you think about that, what what does that tell us about, it? just this is who I am, right? And I think this is similar when he said, Moses said, I want to see your glory. I want to see your face. And God says, you can't fully comprehend my face. If you see my face, you don't possess the ability to process that kind of information. It will actually destroy you. And I think this is similar. Moses is encountering God, and he starts with this, I am that I am. And there's many modern theologians say, okay, there's no point in even trying To know an infinite God. Because God is so far beyond us that we can't even begin to comprehend. My finite mind cannot comprehend the infinite. And to a degree I understand that and I agree with that. And I think that's what God is starting with here. I am that I am. I am beyond all of your categories. I just am. But though we can't know God in every way. Completely. Exhaustively. We can, I think, know God truly. How? Through what he reveals about himself to us, and that's where those theologians, I think, get it wrong. We just can't know God, and all our, you know, thinking about it, our finite minds cannot process that. I understand that, but if God chooses to reveal himself to us, we can know truly what he's like, not completely what he's like, but truly what he's like, because he is the infinite God revealing to us what he's like. Calvin said, when God speaks to us as human beings, he lisps, right? He has to condescend to speak to us. And so there's realities about who God is that we cannot fully understand. He is who he is, but there are aspects of his character that he has revealed to us. And he gives a list of seven attributes here of his character. If You know, seven is that number for completeness in Scripture, and this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This is the most quoted passage by other Old Testament writers in the Old Testament. All or part of this section is quoted 27 times by other Old Testament writers. This obviously was something very important for the writers of Scripture something that the Holy Spirit impressed. We just read Psalm 103 this morning. Basically, that was David riffing on the character of God that's revealed in these passages, fleshing that out a little bit. So I want to slow down and just camp out here a little bit. Because to me, what's really important is that we begin to think about God like He really is And if there's baggage in our lives and views of God that are not according to what he says, to need to push those aside and begin to say, God, I want to see you as you really are, not my picture of you. Because I want to know the real God. And so he starts here. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there. And he passes before. And he says, the I am, the I am, a God merciful and gracious. Some of your translations may say a God compassionate and gracious. There, God starts out in His description of Himself by saying, basically, I'm merciful and I'm compassionate. The word is rahum, and there's another Hebrew word. And if you know Hebrew, there's three letters that make up most words. Rahem is the word for womb. And so they're closely related. It's just God is a God of nurture and compassion. We said together this morning as we read that psalm that God is compassionate like a father has compassion on his children, right? And so that's where God starts out. This is my heart towards you. I am a God of mercy or a God of compassion. It's also translated to be deeply stirred by something. So sometimes we have a picture of God as kind of emotionally disconnected from us. There's a theology that God is impassable, right? That he has basically no emotion. and, And I think the reason we go there is because human emotions so often get us off track, right? We just feel those things, whether it's lust or love or anger, it just, it soon gets out of control, and we have a hard time looking at God in that way. But God is not a dispassionate God in Scripture. He starts out with saying, I'm a God that is moved when I see my people. We see this in the beginning of Exodus, where he looks on his people as they cry out to him in slavery. And he moves to rescue them. Why? Because he knew what they were going through. He felt that at his core. In the book of Nehemiah, you don't have to turn there, but I'll turn there. Chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7. Maybe that right. 26 and 27. Talking about the the Israelites, talking about their repeated disobedience. He says, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer, and in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven, and according to your great mercies... You sent them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your compassion or mercy, that same word." And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. So you said, I'm totally done with these people. No, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, same word, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful or compassionate God. You see his attitude towards these people that over and over and over and over and over again, they keep blowing it. You ever read the Old Testament and you're just like, what in the world is with these people? It's just this repeated cycle of failures, and God repeatedly is compassionate. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a bigger picture here in recognizing, you know what, the law is never going to perfect us. We need a God of compassion that somehow will rescue us out of this dilemma because we over and over make these commitments. Yeah, we're going to do what you say, God, and then in a short order, we're blowing it again. Yet God doesn't respond to us in those times with a hard attitude, but with a heart of compassion. He's emotionally invested in us. And those emotions move him to action when we cry out to him, even when we've been really stupid and really unfaithful. We see that happening right here, right? What just happened? These people, all they're given is Ten Commandments, right? (laughs) Right? And right away, they're breaking them. Yet God does not treat them as they deserve. He responds with compassion. This was such a real characteristic of God that this is why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh, right? Jonah hates the Ninevites, as any Israeli would, right? They're cruel people. They're destructive people. They are their arch enemies, And the forgotten chapter of Jonah that doesn't make it into any kids' books is Jonah 4, right? Where the Ninevites have turned, they've repented, and God is merciful to them. He does not send his destruction. And Jonah's sitting outside the city, and he's pouting. And he's waiting for God, hopefully, to call down fire on this people that are so awful and just burn them to a crisp. And God's not doing it, and he says, what? Oh, this is why I tried to get out of here, because I know what? You're a God of compassion and mercy that relents from sending evil. I just know that about you, God. And that's why I didn't want to come here in the first place, because I hate these people. Yet God loves these people, even though they're people who have greatly wronged him and even his people. Yet that is the first attribute that God gives of himself here. And I think this attribute is so important in our relationship with God because I think it's going to be really hard for us to approach a God that we don't feel, feels and experiences what we're going through and understands that and has a heart that's moved when we cry out to Him. And I think it's also really hard to exercise compassion even for ourselves or others when we don't view God as a God of compassion and understanding. How do you feel when you've blown it? Do you make yourself go through kind of a self-penance? Oh, I'm I'm gonna do my quiet time every morning when I get up at four thirty and I do it. I'm never gonna sin again. I was like, oh, and we're trying to earn God's favor, and God's like, cry out to me. I'm a God of compassion. I know what we read this morning that you're dust. I know that. We have illusions sometimes that we're great, right? And God has no such illusions. Jesus says, I know what's in a man. I'm not going to entrust myself to these human beings. But despite that fact, he loves us and he's invested in us and he looks on us not with anger but with compassion. So he's merciful or he's compassionate, the first character quality. Then he says he's gracious. This is almost... This word is almost exclusively used in the Old Testament of a greater showing favor to a lesser, to someone who is of a much higher status, either in a hierarchy of social status or with resources than somebody else. And that person gives grace or favor, the Hebrew root is hanun, to somebody, we see this. Remember the story of Joseph, right? Um, he goes down to Egypt. His brothers sold him there and then it gets really dicey up in the promised land and his brothers go down there and they're like, "Ooh, man, when they find out it's Joseph, they're like, well, this guy is gonna, he's gonna get it and he's gonna get us for what we've done. And so he doesn't at first and then the father dies, and then they're like, oh, now we're in trouble. He was just holding back <laughs> till dad was off the scene, right? And so they come to him, his brothers, and it, it grieves Joseph. But what his brothers do is they seek his grace, his hanun, his favor at that time. The book of Esther, she seeks hanun, or grace, from the king for her people, She's not in a position to demand that, right? She knows if she walks into the king's presence uninvited, it may be the end of her life. Yet she goes and she asks for grace. My people and I don't deserve this king, but we're asking for grace. In Proverbs 14:21, the words used as well said, "Blessed is the person who shows Hanun grace." to the poor. You've got resources. There's somebody poor. They cannot pay you back. They cannot give anything to you. They aren't deserving of this, but you're blessed if you show that grace to them. So this word means if we're a recipient of it, and this is God's character, that we are getting what is undeserved and unmerited because we are people in need that in no way can pay back the Father for what he has lavished on us. God has been gracious to his people, right? Brought them out of Egypt, and then the text says they plundered the Egyptians. They were given all sorts of resources and riches, and some of those resources later they used (laughs) to cast the golden calf and disobey against God, but he's gracious and giving them and giving them and giving them over and over and over. He says, I am compassionate and gracious, and that's where he starts. When you think of God, is that where your image of God starts, that he's a God of compassion? and of grace. And then he says he is slow to anger. If you've got King James, it's the word long-suffering there, right? Literally in Hebrew, it means he's long of nostril or nose. And you say, what? What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew idiom for getting angry is to get hot in one's nose, right? So when it says God is long in nose or nostril, it means it takes his nose a long time to get hot, I think, is the idea here. The Greek translation of the Old Testament translates this slow to anger as patient. That's the idea here, that God is slow to anger. It's not that he never gets to that place of being angry, but he's slow to get there. And we struggle, I think, with this concept of anger and God, right? Because so often if we get anger and experience anger, it's not a righteous anger and it's not very controlled. And when we project that onto God, it makes us feel like, oh, you know, if God ever gets angry, you know, it's, it's not going to be good. He's going to be out of control. This is what a Hebrew scholar says, slow to anger does not present the Lord as a frustrated deity who eventually loses patience and strikes out against those who have thwarted him. It rather acknowledges that the Lord is reluctant to act against his creation, even when it is in rebellion against him. He waits long to give the sinner opportunity to return in repentance, but he is not forgetful and will not condone sin. At a time of his choosing, he will act decisively Against it, and he quotes Second Peter three nine. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So this idea that God is long in nostril or slow to anger means that he does not, on our initial dis- disobedience or rebellion, just like drop the hammer, right? Sometimes he, I wish that God would be a little bit more dramatic in responding to my sin, like a chunk of my hair would fall out. I feel like, oh, I'd be less prone to sin. But God is patient, right? The first time that we mess up, he doesn't come with a hammer blow into our lives. I remember talking, and it was one of the saddest conversations I had with a guy that is now in prison. And I'm not going to give the details, but I said, did God not warn you before? And he said, Yeah. He warned me over and over and over again, not to go down this path, but I just kept ignoring him. God is slow to anger, but he does get there eventually. And it's interesting, the first time God's nose gets hot in scripture, it's not right before he sends the flood, the emotion that God feels at that point in time, he was grieved. The first time his nose gets hot is when he's dealing with Moses. And five times he asked Moses, hey, do this, do this, do this. And Moses was like, no, 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 send somebody else. And he says, God's nose got hot. But even then, he did not act vindictively towards Moses. He said, okay, I'm going to bring Aaron along. Actually, he's already coming. But God is very patient. And we read something like Dawkins and we hear people, you know, it's like, wow, look at what God did to the people in the promised land when the people came in, how angry he is. And they forget that in Genesis, when the promises are given to the patriarchs, says you're going to be in captivity for 400 years in Egypt, why? Till the sin of the Amorites is full. Imagine that. God gives these people in the promised land 400 years to turn around. Our nation has been in existence for about 250. Imagine 400 years God is patient with these people, and then when the hammer finally drops, he does drop it. But we see also that he drives them out by hornets, that not everybody is killed there, but sometimes the God presented in the Old Testament is this vindictive God that's about to lose it. 400 years, that's a pretty long fuse in my book. We see his patience with Egypt and Pharaoh, right? 10 opportunities for him to turn around. 10 opportunities, right? We see it again with the people here that over. And over. God rescues them. He does all these miracles for them. And then, in short order, they're constantly grumbling, complaining, whining. Where's the water? We hate the food. Da, 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 da. And He's gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. It's so great to know that God does not have a short fuse, isn't it? Yeah. Especially as we deal with those sins in our lives that just seem to have a grip in it our hearts and we just struggle really hard to get rid of those. To know that God's not up there looking as I can't believe just you know. But Come on. Let's work on this together. My nose is not burning hot yet even though you think it should be because I'm gracious and compassionate and I know what you're made of. And he moves on He's a God that's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is a really hard word to translate. If you know German, this is a good German. Chesed, right? It's that word that encompasses ideas of loyalty and keeping a promise, of generosity, of commitment to somebody with affection kind of baked into that as well. I heard Tim Mackey of the Bible Project illustrating this, and he said, you know, a really good picture of this is to think of an elderly couple and one of the partners in that relationship has developed Alzheimer's. And then the husband or wife just sticks with that partner with Alzheimer's till the end even though that person does not recognize them or can't do anything that will benefit them. They said, in essence, I have made a commitment to you till death do us part, and I'm going to love you as best I can, even in the midst of this. Why? Because I made a commitment to you. Not because I get back anything out of this relationship, but because I made a loving commitment to you. This word is used a ton in the Old Testament. And about 75% of the time it's used of God's chesed for his people. But sometimes it's used of people. Boaz, in the story of Ruth, says that Ruth demonstrated chesed towards Naomi. Why? You know the story, right? It's a famine, so they move out of Egypt into Moab. Naomi's two sons marry some Moabites, and then the sons die, and she's going back to Israel, and she says, yeah, I've got nothing to give you girls. There's nobody else in my family that you can marry. Sticking around with me, it's not a good thing. Look at my life. I'm just, I'm bitter, she says. This is is me right now. And what does Ruth say? Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your God will be my God. I'm going to stick with you to the very end. And Boaz says, you know what? That's hesed. That's commitment love that goes the distance to the very end. In Micah 6.8, this is one of the things that's supposed to characterize us. right? He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. But to do justly and to love mercy. And that word mercy there is hesed to love loving kindness, to love loyal love, commitment love, unfailing love. This is so rare in our world, right? Love that goes the distance, even if the one being loved cannot reciprocate in any way, or even if the one being loved is not reciprocating in a positive way, at all. God has that kind of love for his people. And notice what he says about himself. I'm abounding in this kind of love. It's not just, I got a little bit of this love, but not that much. Maybe you're going to push the envelope and I'm going to run out. And it's like, no, this is what abounds in me. Is that in your picture of God? I'm so glad that this love is available. And then this next word, translated in the ESV, faithfulness or truthfulness. It's the idea of being trustworthy and and true. The idea of God being completely reliable and consistently reliable for us. It's that idea of what he says is true and what he says he will do. He will follow through on. He is truthful. He is trustworthy. When we bank on a promise in his word, this word tells us he's going to fulfill that promise. He's a God that scripture says cannot lie, right? So when he speaks, he speaks the truth. So he's trustworthy. So therefore, we can place our trust in him because he is trustworthy. He can be counted on. There's a stability and reliability in our God. And that would have been very different for these ancient folks, right? Where the gods of the surrounding nations were like, you never know. Is my God going to be in a good mood or is he going to be in a bad mood? I don't know what I'm going to get when I approach this God and what he's saying about himself is, I am true and trustworthy. What I've said before will carry through in the future. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can bank on that. That's who I am. I'm not fickle. I'm not changing. I will be consistent in my love for you. He's a God of steadfast love, of love and kindness, of faithfulness, And then he says, he's a God that forgives. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The word to forgive there means to to lift or to carry away. I think it's a beautiful picture of God carrying our sins away from us. Of lifting the burden of guilt off of our shoulders. So we read this morning, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he carried away our sins from us. And notice, God, he, he, he uses all these different words for sin. In ESV, he starts with iniquity, and that means a, a turning aside from good. Then he moves to transgressions, which is kind of more defiant, a, a rebellious, bold kind of, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I don't care what you've said, God, I'm going to go my own way. And then this last one, sin, is just kind of the most general term for sin in Hebrew. And what's the point? I think the point God is making there is I forgive every and all kinds of sin. Whether it's just turning off the path or whether it's a defiant fist in my face, if you return to me, if you repent, I will forgive you because that's the kind of God that I am. And we see this even in how he's dealing with the Israelites who had just egregiously rebelled against him. And he says, I'm a God that forgives to all who will turn to me. And I'm so grateful because I've probably committed all three of those types of sin in my life. And if there's something in your life and you're like, man, God can never forgive me for that because I sure can't forgive myself for that this lets me know that God can forgive you for that. And he does forgive you for that if you will confess that to him. All types, all varieties. Whether you think it's a big sin or if it's just something little, God is willing to forgive. He says, this is part of my nature. I'm forgiving to thousands. So don't stay away from God because you think he can't handle what you've done. Or that you've done so much that he would never want to associate with you. He's telling us right here, my character is to forgive. That's who I am. This is God speaking about who he is. This is his self-portrait. This is who I am. I'm a forgiving God. Come to him. Confess. He will not cast you aside. So those are six qualities. And that's... Where most of us would like to end God's self description here, right? But that's not where God ends it. And we need to have a full orbed picture of who God is. And so we move into this seventh quality He will not clear the guilty. And he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on children and children's children of the third and fourth generation. So we read this and it seems to kind of totally disqualify what we've already been talking about. It's like, so what in the world is going on here? To me, what the author that we read said is this this is God's, in essence, righteousness coming through, his justice coming through. And we think, oh, you know, it'd be cool just if everything is forgotten, you know? And when we apply it to our life, yeah, that's what we want, right? But in our day and age, we are very aware of the fact that we, as people, want justice, right? Whether it's in the racial arena, and we hear quotes like, silence is violence, right? If you aren't engaged, if you aren't bringing justice, then there is something deficient in your character. and I understand that, right? If you see someone being harmed, you should rise up in righteousness to seek to prevent that. And that's what God is saying about himself. This is who I am. I am a God that is righteous. And if you won't turn to me, if you won't repent, if you won't seek my forgiveness, then there will be justice that comes. I will judge you. And we in our culture do not like to hear that, right? We want God to be a Santa Claus God. Everybody gets a pass no matter what they've done or what they've said about God. And it's like, no, no matter what you've said about God, if you turn to God and repent, he will forgive you. But if you remain in that stance, God will bring justice. We saw that exercise just a little while ago, right? When Moses comes down the mountain, And God tells Moses, you tell people, okay, if you're with the Lord, come to me. (laughs) Okay? He gives an opportunity for everybody, even if they participated in that rebellion, to declare their allegiance to the Lord and say, this was a really bad screw-up, but we're on the Lord's side. But those who remain at a distance, I think the ringleaders, God said, okay, they're going to be taken out. There is justice there. And again, this doesn't sit well with us, and it really doesn't sit well with this third and fourth generation stuff, right? I can't believe, you know, God is being vindictive. He seems to be vengeful even against not the person that committed the sin, but the the third and fourth generation. I think there's a couple things we need to understand about this verse. First is, this is not the first time that this has come up in Scripture. We saw it before in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments in verse 5, and there's some really important verbiage in there that is not put in here, but I think clearly applies. He will show basically love and compassion to thousands of generations of those who love me and obey my commandments, but to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So it's not just like okay, this third and fourth generation they're totally fine. it's this attitude of hatred towards God that's displayed there. And we're getting late. I'd encourage you to read Ezekiel 18. And in that whole passage, it starts out with the Israelites complaining, saying, you know, this is what's happening to us. You know, the fathers eat sour grapes, and our mouth puckers, our our teeth are set on edge. And it's like, that's totally unfair. We're being punished for something our parents did. And that whole chapter, God is saying, that is not how I work. Not at all. If you sin, you pay for your sin. You don't pay for your parents' sin. And if your dad was a rascal and you turned to be a righteous one, then I will be gracious to you. So read through that. So clearly this is not this idea that, okay, you know, I'm the third or fourth generation, you know, my great-grandfather was a scoundrel, so I'm just, I'm generation generationally cursed. Have you heard that in church? This is not supporting this idea of generational curses. Read Ezekiel 18. That if a person turns and can I just can't turn because I'm generationally cursed and there's a whole kind of cottage industry of the church of you know removing generational curses and they take it from this passage and I don't think that's at all what God is saying here especially in this culture probably three or four generations would generally live in the same area right Three or four generations, that's 60 to 80 years, probably the lifetime of the person that sinned. And I think God acknowledges there are consequences of sin that are visited on kids. That's the reality, right? All of us know that. If you've been raised in an alcoholic family or whose grandparents are alcoholics, there are consequences of that pattern of behavior, that sin that spill over on that. And that's just the reality. But God is not punishing those children for the sins of the fathers. It's not like, okay, I was raised in that family. I can't come to God now because I'm generationally cursed. That is not at all what is being said here. Read Ezekiel 18. If you turn, then God will forgive. That's always, always his attitude. So much so that he has to tell Jeremiah, one of his prophets, hey, don't pray for these people because I've ordained judgment and if you start praying, I know you're a righteous man. My heart of compassion may be moved towards them and I've declared justice for them at this point in time. And also to remember, look at how God's scales are tipped in this passage. He shows grace and forgives thousands and it's three or four generations. It's like... The scales are so heavily weighted in the favor of grace and mercy and forgiveness. As I've said before, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but they would turn. And that ability to turn is always available as long as you are breathing. So regardless of your background, where you've come from, and a like, man, I'm just... My parents were messed up. My grandparents were messed up. I'm just cursed, I guess. God is saying, no, that's not the case. You bear consequences in your life. Yeah, but if you will turn to the Lord, he will begin to redeem your life and transform you from the inside out and work on those issues that you have kind of experienced because of the consequences of sin. And to me, this gives a strong incentive for us who are believers not to sin. Because sometimes we think, oh, my sin's just going to affect me. mm 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 My sin spills over and has consequences on other people, especially those nearest to me in my family. But God is not holding these people responsible and judging them guilty because of what grandfather did. That's not what is being said here. And to me, this tension between God's grace and his justice, it doesn't get fully resolved till the cross of Jesus Christ where we see his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion in that his son is taking upon himself the punishment that my sins and your sins deserved. And God's not just turning a blind eye and say, boys will be boys, girls will good." no, Christ died. He bore the penalty of sin. God was both just and justifying those who believe in Jesus Christ. The tension is resolved in Christ. So if you don't know Christ this morning, I'd urge you to turn to him. There's nothing that you've done that will keep him away from you. If you're willing to turn to him. So let me ask you a question. How does your picture of God compare to God's self-portrait in this text? And like I said at the beginning, I think we've all got baggage that we bring into our relationship with God. And I think a lot of that baggage needs to get cleared out. And that's not an easy process, but to me, one of the things that I need to pray is God, help me to see you as you really are. As Moses prayed, show me your glory. I want to see you. And as God responded to Moses, I think he will respond to us as well as we honestly say that. God, I want to see you as you are. Help me to see your goodness pass before me. Help me to see how just beautiful you are in every facet. That you're compassionate, you're gracious, you're not easily ticked off. You abound with this commitment, love. You're faithful and true. You're forgiving but you don't turn a blind eye to sin. And it does have an impact on others' lives. So Lord, help me to know you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have shown yourself to your servant Moses and we get to listen in on how you have described yourself. Lord we all struggle to have an accurate picture of you so we just ask that your spirit would help us. Help us to know you and when we can't fully comprehend it I pray that you would help us to see your love that is beyond our ability to comprehend by the power of your spirit. Work in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to push out those misperceptions and inaccuracies in how we're thinking about you. And Lord, if there's anyone here that's been staying away from you because their picture of you is of an angry God that is not very welcoming, I just pray that your spirit would draw their heart to you. That they would understand your love. That they would understand that you're a God that is so willing to forgive. That you don't have a little bit of love but you are abounding and overflowing with it. Lord, we deserve none of this but this is just who you are. And we can be grateful recipients of your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness and your kindness. Thank you, Lord, that you don't treat us as we deserve, but you have called us into relationship with you. We are adopted as your children and we are co-heirs with our big brother, Jesus Christ. Now we can begin understand fully what that means but thank you thank you that it's a reality and thank you that one day we will experience that and it's in jesus powerful and precious name that i pray amen stand if you would read my favorite prayer from ephesians 3 For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and established in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more than we imagine or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, God bless you as you walk with the living God this week.